we've had a, quite a week, hadn't we, with the storms that occurred and um, there are several from our church family are in Amory this morning who are uh, trying to minister to families and uh, demonstrate Christ's love um, uh, as a result of the storms that uh, hit this week. So let, let me pray with you and, and we're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 2 as we start this series of messages uh, on these seven churches of Asia. So let, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We're grateful uh, for your presence as we've been singing about your love and the demonstration of such love through the cross and through the shed blood and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his resurrection from the dead that we might have forgiveness of sins and abundant and eternal life in you. Father, would you bless those of our church family who are serving this morning, uh, that you'd protect them, but more even that, that your love would be demonstrated through deeds and gospel witnesses and sharing and conversations would occur. Bless those who will be traveling today to serve as well, and may you be glorified even in difficult times. We ask that you would guide us from your word, that we would respond to you today in freedom, and liberty, and obedience, through prayer, however you speak to us, and God, that you'd be pleased with our faithful responses, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to Revelation chapter 2, the writer is the apostle John. John, as he writes this, is uh, in his 90s. He's older, like the other Christians, towards the end of the first century. When this is written, there's some persecution that was occurring. Um, prior to this time, James' brother, or John's brother James, has been beheaded because of his faith. All of the other disciples have been martyred as well. Martyred. They would not recant. They were convinced that Jesus was alive, that he had been raised from the dead. He had appeared to them. And so there was this great boldness, this great confidence in faith. And John of the 12 disciples is the last one standing, the only one left. The Roman emperor Domitian had banished John to the island of Patmos he had been banished, sentenced because of his faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to the gospel, for the word of his testimony. And so he was exiled to this island, a place for criminals to spend as a, to live as a sentence. And then here, towards the first century, if you were a follower of Christ, if you admitted your faith in Jesus, then you were in danger of persecution as well. Followers were fleeing to remote parts of the Roman world. Many had lost everything they had. They left their homes. They had left occupations, going through financial struggles, isolation, loneliness, and thoughts perhaps in their minds were being raised, is it worth it? 
Is my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ worth all of this? The cost was considerable for them. And it was into those types of conditions that God provides this revelation that we have for us, this unveiling of what is to come. God delivers his message, his word to his church to encourage them and to revive their faith. They needed to hear and to be reminded who Jesus is and they needed to know how everything was going to end, thus the book of Revelation. There was a progression to this revelation. You remember in chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says that God gives this message to the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus delivers it to this angel and this angel reveals this message to John and John is told to write it and to send it to the seven churches and thus it has also been preserved for us. A certain progression. There's also a promise. In verse 3, whoever reads these words and whoever hears these words and whoever keeps these words, who obey this, who treasure the message of this book and dwell on it will be blessed by God. So John is on the island of Patmos and he's there on the Lord's day. The Bible says he was in the spirit and as he began to move, he heard behind him a loud voice, sounded like the blast of a trumpet and it was the risen Christ. The voice, he said, sounded like the rushing of many waters and the Lord commanded him to write John, write everything that you hear and write everything that you see. Write it in a book and send it to my churches. And we have a map just to kind of refresh our memory. These were seven real churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey there. Um, Each of those churches that we're going to read about in Revelation, there was a message that Jesus had to each one of them. But each one of those churches also can represent individual Christians. If you go through those, loveless, persecuted, compromising, corrupt, and on and on. So there's value, there's relevance for us to look at this as a church collectively, but there's also some relevance for us individually. I would also point out as we read here in Revelation chapter 2, if you look at the very first verse, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. See that in verse 1? To a specific church, the angel of the church of Ephesus. And then if you'll jump down in verse 7 of this section to this church at Ephesus, it says, to, or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is, plural. So there is value to this individual church, this message at Ephesus, but there's also value to all churches for us to hear what Jesus says to this individual church. So individual relevance as well as corporate relevance. Read with me now through the entire text. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, John write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He closes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I cannot imagine something more harmful, more hurtful than to hear your spouse say to you, I don't love you anymore. Or to hear that person say, I wish I never married you. I no longer have any desire for you. My feelings for you have grown cold. It would rip at the soul. You remember the old song, I think it was recorded years ago by the Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Love and Feeling? Some of you know that song. I like the song, I like the words, I'm not too crazy about the lyrics. On the outside, a marriage may look perfect, a match made in heaven, it may appear great, but on the inside, it might be a different story. In all cases, love for the other person is not lost in a moment, but rather slowly, over time, begins to wane and to diminish. And it's possible that couples may not even realize that it's happening until it reaches a state where it's pretty severe. That describes the first century church at Ephesus. By all outward appearances, in the city community of Ephesus, they appeared great. The Bible says, however, as Jesus walked among them, we hear him describe that things are different on the inside. What's on the outside, how the church appears, is far different than what is on the inside. Like many churches today, things may look good. We're busy, on the go, doing good things, serving the Lord, very active. But somehow, through careless neglect, the church has lost something, the most important thing. And we find in verse 4, Jesus says, this is what the church has lost. The, lost, the church has lost a passion for Christ, a love for him, and a love for the gospel. The Ephesian church was real 
It started in a large, prosperous, commercial city. The capital city of Asia was Ephesus. It was referred to as the vanity fair of the ancient world. One of the seven great wonders of the world was in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, where literally thousands of priests and priestesses served the immoral interests of their pagan interests, the worshipers. Luke gives a little history about the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 18 and 19, a gospel team consisting of Paul and a Paul or a Priscilla and Aquila. They labor in this city for two to three years and with great opposition, but they labor sharing the gospel, building relationships, going out into the marketplace, going in to where people were, engaging in conversation, sharing the gospel, calling people to put their faith and trust in God through Christ. And people began to respond. People were saved and they baptized folks and they began to form them into a congregation, began to train them and instruct them of what it meant to be a follower, a disciple of Christ and begin to identify leaders and pour into them and train them and teach them about leadership in the church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul has left Ephesus. He'd been gone for a while. And he's heading back to Jerusalem. It's towards the end of his ministry. And as he sails and he goes between the south of Turkey and the island of Patmos, probably where John eventually is, he sends a message ahead and he calls for the leaders, the elders from the church at Ephesus, this church. He wants to meet with them one final time. I want to read to you a couple of verses. This was his message to this church, to the Ephesians. It's recorded for us in Acts 20. He meets with the elders. They come, and he says to them in verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock among you, where the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, and shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And Paul warns them, I know this, that after my departure, after I am gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, internally, men will rise up in the church, speaking perverse things to draw away the church, the disciples, after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. That was his last words to the leadership of the church at Ephesus. He eventually goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. Sometime later, he eventually is in Rome. He's in a prison cell, and it's from that prison cell that he writes this letter that we have in front of us to this Ephesian church. And then about 20 to 25 years later, John also delivers this message, this text to this church at Ephesus. And there are four things that I want you to consider with me from the text. 
The first, in verse 1, Jesus says, John, write to them, and I want them to know as a church, I want them to be aware of me. I want them to be aware of me. In their suffering, as they're going through persecution, with all their fears and doubts and discouragement, I want them to know me, to remember who I am. Earlier in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13, do you remember John sees Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands? Verse 20 from our text, we know that the lampstands are each of the individual churches. And so Jesus is in the midst of his church. Each individual church, a lampstand to hold up the light, to have influence, to shine for Christ. In the very first verse, Jesus says, I walk, I live, I dwell in the midst of my church. I want them to know that I am with them. Not only am I with them, I want them to know that I'm aware of everything that they are experiencing, everything that is good, everything that is difficult, all that they're going through, I know it all. And you see in verse 2 and 3, not only am I with them and not only am I aware of everything they're experiencing, but I'm in control of everything. In chapter 1, verse 16, John sees Jesus not only walking in the midst of the seven churches, but he also sees the Lord Jesus holding in his right hand seven stars. And in verse 20 also, we saw that the stars, each of those stars are one of the angels of each individual church. And so our text begins in verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And there's the same thing for each church. If you go through and reach each seven, to the angel of the church at Thyatira, to the angel of the church at Laodicea, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, each individual angel of each individual church receives this message, this angel, this messenger is the leader, the pastor of the church. The Ephesian church is historically been blessed with some excellent leadership, some stars, some pastors. Paul was the first pastor, followed by, you remember, Timothy. First and second Timothy are written by Paul to this young new pastor that replaces him at Ephesus. And eventually the apostle John replaces Timothy as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11 that these pastors were gifts to the church to help build them up, to equip them for effective ministry. God says, I'm in control. I am with you. I'm aware of everything you're going through, and I'm in control of all things. So, you remember the first rule of all Bible study? The most important rule of all Bible study? It's a question. What does this Bible study, what does this text reveal to me about God? So as you read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, how would you answer the question, the first rule? What does this reveal about God? Well, it reveals that he is with us. He's omnipresent. Remember, the psalmist said, Lord, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost of the parts of the sea, even there you are with me. Your hand holds me, your right hand comforts me. God is always with us. 
God is aware of us. He's omniscient. Every action, every deed, every word, every thought, every motive, he knows it all. He knows everything that we're going, that's going on in our lives, all that we're thinking, experiencing, and he's also in control, omnipotent. I hold you in my right hand. I'm with you, aware of you, in control of everything in your life. It kind of reinforces God's providence. God sees. He sees ahead of us. He's omniscient. He sees to us. He cares. These followers that John is writing to needed to be constantly made aware of Jesus and who he is and all of these things. So John, write this first just to remind them of who I am. And then second in verses two and three and also in verse six, John, provide them some words of approval. This is some commentary about their church. Jesus commends them for they're making the point that he's aware. John, I want you to write to them to know, to know me and for them to know that I know them. I know everything that's going on as a congregation. I know that everything that's going on in their individual lives, I'm omniscient. And I want you to notice how Jesus provides this commendation. Look at the things that he describes about them. First, Jesus knew that the Ephesians were a serving church. I know your works. You're busy for me. You're active. You're devoting time and energy, and he commends that. You're a sacrificing church. He says, I know your labor. That word labor literally means to toil. To toil to the point of exhaustion. Any of you ever served the Lord to the point of exhaustion? They were paying a price, laboring, he says later in the text, for the sake of my name. They were a serving church. They were a sacrificing church. They were a steadfast church. He said, I know your patience. You have persevered. You've endured. You've not given up. You've not grown and yielded to being weary. No matter the trials, no matter what they encountered, they were tough Tough-minded Christians, enduring. They were the kind of energizer bunny types. Just kept going and going and going. A serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, and a separated church. Look at verse 6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a sect of people who distorted doctrine. Basically, they came up with rules and regulations for the church to follow, to ascribe to, that was destroying Christian liberty. The law became preeminent over love. All about rules and guidelines and regulations. The very things that turn a lot of people off to churches today because they're kind of steeped in rules and regulation and the law instead of love similar to the Galatian church. The Galatians, the, these individuals had come in, these false teachers, causing them to forsake the new covenant of grace and to revert back to the law, to Judaism, and in essence, the gospel is not enough. The gospel is not sufficient. 
You remember Paul pled with him? Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He said, oh, foolish, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, causing you to turn away from the truth? Did any of you ever grow up watching that television program, Bewitched? I grew up watching Bewitched. You remember Samantha? She could think of and recite a spell and twitch her nose and pow. That's the word the Bible uses for bewitched. It's what the Nicolaitans done. They would talk to people, influence people by their words, by their actions, and bring them under their spell, under their influence. False teachers who had influence at Galatia, also that were going on in Ephesus, influencing people contrary to the truth, bringing them under their spell. Jesus praises the church. It all sounds good. It all looks good. He commends them. You're a serving church. You're a separated church. You're a steadfast church. Lots of approval, lots of condemnation or commendation and praise. They looked good on the inside, but on the inside things were different. The words of commendation and praise quickly yield in verse 4 to some words of condemnation. Look at verse 4. Jesus speaks some words of accusation. Look at verse 4. He says, but... Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left, you've lost your first love. You look good on the outside, but inwardly, there was some heart trouble. They had a heart condition. Recently, uh, Mindy went and had a cardiac calcium test and the results came back. Some of you have had such a test. Came back, the results were at a perfect score. And suggested you should go have a cardiac calcium test as well. And so I went and had the test, and mine was not a perfect score. My numbers were elevated. And so the next step was to go see a cardiologist. And so I went to a cardiologist and met and set up a nuclear stress test and discovered that I don't have a problem, but I'm showing some early signs of being at risk and need to make some changes. And those changes are in process and they're really enjoyable. If I get up in the morning and go through my normal morning routine and shave and shower and dress up, maybe dabble on some smell good, on the outside, if you were around me and saw me, there would be no outward visible signs that anything is wrong on the inside. What you would not see, what you could not see, is slowly over the years, there's been some plaque built up on the inside. The Ephesian church looked 
good. They looked great on the outside. They were serving. They were laboring. They were doing all of the right things. They demonstrated patience and endurance and doctrinal fidelity. But they lost. They abandoned their first love. What was their first love? They developed a heart problem. A heart problem that slowly developed over a period of time. A a heart for God had changed. They didn't have the same passion for Christ. They didn't have the same heart for the gospel. They didn't have the same passion and heart for the things that God had. Jesus said, the most important thing for my followers to know, the most important thing for them to get right is to love me with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. If you don't get anything else right, Jesus says, get that right. That's the foundation. That's the heart of everything. The most important characteristic of knowing me is love. Loving me supremely, passionately. The most important fruit of the Spirit is love. It's listed first. You remember after the apostle Peter denied Jesus? You remember he said, I will never do that? And Jesus said to him, Peter, tonight before in the morning the cock will crow three times and before the cock crows in the morning you will deny me this night three times. Peter said, I will never do that. And certainly he yielded and fell. And when Jesus meets with him to restore him, do you remember what he asks him? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, the Bible says, is a little frustrated at the continuing question. And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus said, then feed my sheep, serve me. His service was to flow out of his love. Jesus said, he didn't ask him if he loved sheep. He didn't ask him if he loved serving. He said, do you love me? John recorded earlier in his gospel a new commandment, a greater commandment that I give to you that you should love one another for by this shall all men know that you belong to me, that you are my followers, you are my people through your love for one another. And so the heart is first love God passionately and love your neighbors, love others as you do yourselves. Our service for God matters. What we do for the Lord matters. The way that you demonstrate service to God is serving people. That's how you serve the Lord. You serve people. And so that is so important, but also is why we serve and how we serve. Motives matter. Mindy and I, this June, will be married 41 years. Some buddy of mine said, in a row. (laughs) And our love for each other over those years has changed a little bit. 
It's not, it's not quite as tingly. You know about the tingles? It's not quite as tingly as it once was. And it's changed a little bit. It's matured. Our love for each other has developed. It's deeper and it's stronger. And there's a rich friendship there. And as we serve and care for each other, no mistake, love still drives it. I still have deep feelings for her, and I still like being with her, enjoy spending time together, and I think most days she does me. <laughs> but I want to ask you as a follower of Christ, how do you know if you've left your first love? How does a church, how do we individually know if we've lost, if we've abandoned our first love? Let me give you some questions. Am I still passionate about Jesus? Do I look forward to worshiping the Lord Jesus, praising him? Am I determined to please the Lord? Am I still excited about coming to church and spending time in his word? Do I have a hunger and a thirst to please him and to know him? Does my service to the Lord seem rewarding and joyful? Or has it all become drudgery, work? A new member said last Sunday morning in a class, she said, me and my husband, we love Sundays. We love coming to church. We love being here. Look forward to it every Sunday. And think about this question. Has my love for Christ grown cold? Have I abandoned my first love by asking this question? Am I harboring, am I holding on to any anger, any bitterness toward another person? In my mind, is there any hostility towards someone else in my spirit? Am I refusing to let go, to cancel a debt and just give it to God or am I hanging on to it? You see, it's by our love for each other that measures our love for God. How we view, how we think of, how we treat other people is an indicator of where we are in our love relationship with God. For how can you say that you love God whom you have never seen when you can't love your brother whom you have seen. See, once we lose our love for the Lord, you can be sure that we will lose our love for each other. And we will lose our love for the lost. The Ephesians' love for God began to wane and to wane slowly to the point that it was gone. They lost it. And Jesus reminds them, I'm aware of you. I want you to be aware of me. I approve of much that you are doing, but I have this against you, this accusation, this charge, by your own carelessness, by your own neglect, You've left your first love. And in verse 5, Jesus provides some words of admonition. And I'll close with this. He says there's a solution. 
There's a remedy. Jesus says, do this. I want you to remember. I want you to repent. And I want you to repeat. All in verse 5. What's the solution for a waning love for the Lord, for abandoning love? Remember, remember, he says, recognize that you've left me. It's kind of like someone who is an alcoholic. One of the first steps to recovering from alcoholism is to admit, to recognize, I have a problem. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember recognize God I have a problem you already know it I don't love you like I used to love you I'm not passionate about you the way I once was I'm not as excited about you as I used to be I don't love the things that you love and I have a problem and second he says fix it Repent, go back to the gospel, back to the gospel, back to the gospel. I've shared this with you before by thinking years ago was the gospel, this message about the death and the burial, resurrection, the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that that gospel message was what I needed and what all people needed to acknowledge in order to be saved. And once you got saved, that was all the gospel. And it was a pretty shallow understanding of the gospel. And it wasn't until some years later that I began to understand that not only do you believe the gospel unto salvation, but you live it out. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there needs to be a death in me, a dying to the old self, and a continual newness of life that he produces. And so the solution is to go back to the gospel, to keep preaching the gospel back to myself to remember Jesus to remember how great my sin was have, have we lost have we lost an appreciation have we lost an understanding for our own spiritual depravity have we lost that and we don't think our heart is desperately wicked and we can't even understand it. We lost that. Do you think that we are all pretty good, righteous people here at Hillcrest Baptist Church? Let me tell you what I know about us as church. Those of us who know the Lord and who love the Lord, we still, we're still wrestling with sin. Sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes. Do you think that there's any sexual immorality going on in this church? Any fornication, any adultery? Do you think that there's women in this church who've had abortions in the past? You think that people in here drink to excess, to drunkenness in our own church? who've had failed marriages, who've gone through divorce, who still use poor language, who still have lustful thoughts, who still have sinful temptations and sometimes yield to... Do you think that's still true of us as a church? 
can go on and on, who are dishonest with their finances, who cheat the IRS, who are disobedient to God in all areas. I'm not trying to beat us up, condemn us. I'm saying we need to understand that we are still a sinful people saved by the grace of God. And if we forget that, we'll lose, we'll lose an, an appreciation for the gospel. We'll lose our appreciation for who Christ was and what he did for us at the cross and the sacrifice and the shed blood. If we ever lose an awareness of our sinfulness, I heard this once, that as we, as Christians, as we grow in sanctification and pursuing Christ, hopefully we become less sinful, but more and more we become of how sinful we are. recognize, to acknowledge we have a problem, to repent. Let me, and I'm probably going to get in trouble. Some of you are not going to like this. But I've been aware through some conversations that some of you have had that you've shared with me in confidence about some things that some other people in the community have said negatively about our church. Well, you know, you, I heard that you got that brother as a deacon. Do you know that that brother's been through divorce? Now he's a deacon in your church? He's a leader in your church? And I, there's another brother that I know is, is an alcoholic and had this, had an anonymous phone message left on my message machine. Do you, pastor, you need to do your research before you make somebody a leader, a deacon in your church. There's a brother that's a deacon in your church and I can't tell you how many years I've seen him so drunk on his front porch he couldn't get in the front door and he's a lead, leader of your church. You need to do your homework. Yeah. We've done our homework. You know what the homework says? That the grace of God is changing people's lives. He changes people. And you know what? I care about our reputation in the community, but I don't really care. What I care about is seeing the gospel, understanding the gospel, that God has taken a bunch of sinful, depraved people. He's washed us, made us as white as snow in the sight of God, and he's working in us, and he's changing our lives. And I rejoice in that. And if we lose that, then let's just close the doors and go off to the perfect church in the community. You fill in the blank. It's the gospel. What restores a love? What restores a passion for Christ? The gospel. I deserve to be eternally separated from God. I deserve to be sentenced to eternal condemnation in hell, but God, who is rich in mercy, made, made me alive in Christ Jesus, and so all of my praise, my adoration, my love is due him. And repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. And let me, just, let me say something else. If you're here in this church and you think, well, I can never serve the Lord, I couldn't lead, I couldn't teach, I couldn't do this, this church, they don't know how bad I've been, how sinful we've been. Listen, God knows, and he can forgive you and cleanse you and clean you up and make you new. His mercies are new for you every day, every day they're brand new. No matter how we might fail him today and fall and sin, God's mercy, we get a fresh start every day because of the gospel. That's who we are. 
And so repeat, what does he say? Do the first works. Do what you did at the first. And he says, if not, if you don't remember and repent and repeat, he says, I will come. It's not referring to the second coming. It's referring to judgment. I will come in judgment. And what is sad is the church of Ephesus, even after this warning from the Lord Jesus Christ, remained careless and eventually lost the lampstand. And do you know in just a few short years after this was written, the church at Ephesus was no more. They no longer were a shining light, a brining light in the community. The lampstand had been removed. And the church of Ephesus was gone. Hillcrest, whoever has an ear to hear, to read, to hear, and to think, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to me. And he promises, and he closes with a great promise, to those who overcome, I will give them access to the tree of eternal life. Overcomers. It's listed for every church, to the one who overcomes, to those who overcome. I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. Don and musicians come this morning. I'd like for us to feel led by the Lord just to open up for some moments, some minutes of prayer. To invite you to come and on knees before the Lord to say, Lord, I, I have a problem. Some things in my heart are not right towards you. I'm not really worried, not too concerned what anyone else thinks. Lord, I just want to please you. And God, I need to repent. And I need to go back to the gospel. Remember who you are and what you've done for me at the cross. And pray and say, Lord, would you, would you restore my passion and my love and devotion for you. That drudgery would turn to delight. <coughs> to be a new joy, a new love for you and a new love for other people. Lord, a, more of a forgiving heart to, to let go of things, to entrust it all to you, to your care. Just to lay it down to worship the Lord. Father, have your way in these moments in my life, in the life of your church, our church family, God, that you'd speak to us and that we would respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.